Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. All right, well, as you grab your seats, I'm going to be opening our our next portion of our service with our scripture reading. Uh, We are closing Matthew chapter 2. And we are reading verses 13 to 23 uh, in this Advent season. So it says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, This fourth Sunday of Advent signifies this theme of love. And love is a part of God's character, and it's how he identifies himself. It's within the image of God that we are created, and from that image, love is found. In our humanity, love is intentional, but in the divine, love is unconditional. Love requires us to look more around us and see the needs around us so that they can be met. And it invites us to look beyond ourselves and our priorities. John 13, 34 to 35 says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's been a wonderful journey through this season of Advent, considering the story of Christmas through the lens of of Matthew. And I hope that you've been inspired and and challenged within it. I know that even in in my preparation, it's, it's brought new eyes for me to the Christmas story. I think a lot of the time when we look at Christmas, we consider the characters that are really well known to us. But Matthew provides a little bit of a different perspective. We've talked about the character of Joseph. We've, we've looked at the, the magi who arrived. We saw the genealogy of Jesus actually signifying so much in regards to the story of Israel and the people of God coming to be into the place where God wants them to be. We, we saw all this take place. Not your most traditional Christmas stories. And we are continuing on that journey because the second half of Matthew, I hope you heard it, is not what you would maybe find in your Hallmark movie special. So it's a little more graphic. It's a, it's a little bit more 
conflicting. There's weeping and there's groaning within the people that were undergoing the oppression of a ruler that was beyond their control. In, in 2019, there was an article in the New Yorker that was titled, How Hallmark Took Over Cable Television. It was written by a journalist by the name of Sarah Larson, and, it, and she noted that since 2011, from late October to January, Hallmark has broadcasted Christmas movies nearly 24 hours a day, seven days a week. During the 2019 holiday season, the programming, they called it Countdown to Christmas, and it made Hallmark the number one cable network among women between the ages of 25 and 54. And even in some primetime slots, it was number one during that period of time. They estimated that during that countdown to Christmas, 72 million people tuned in at some point. If you've ever watched a Hallmark movie, uh, you know what to expect. The film follows a pretty predictable pattern with predictable characters, and it usually unfolds in a pretty predictable town. Uh, Larson notes that often the, the townspeople, they care for one another, they run viable small businesses, and they compete in a gingerbread bake-off of some sort. That, that's, that's essentially the, the premise of most Hallmark movies. The, the CEO of Hallmark, Hallmark's entertainment company, Crown Media, he's, he told her that those movies are the place to go to get away from politics to get away from everything in your life that is problematic and negative, and to feel like there are people out there who are good human beings that you can maybe feel happy about being part of the human race. That was his, his precedent for Hallmark movies. And now, I, I read this quote, and I'm going to be honest, I found the line a little depressing. Is this really what we need to be watching, to have faith in the human race. This, in reality, false presentation that makes us believe that, well, we can, we can hope that people would be like this one day. Now, I can't claim that I've spent a lot of time watching Hallmark movies or, or committed an immense amount of research in the preparation of this sermon, but my brief survey of Hallmark movie trailers would seem to indicate that they have continued along this pattern that we saw in 2019. And this morning isn't about bashing Hallmark movies. If that's your thing, awesome, more power to you. But there is an idealism in their presentation which seems in line with our cultural perception of Christmas. But it is out of line with the Christmas story of itself. If you've joined with us these past few weeks or you've seen it online, you'll have noticed that Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 are far from cookie cutter. Scandalous birth, the arrival of pagan sorcerers with a, with, with a ridiculous gift, plans of divorce, fleeing from a, a murderous king. This was all taking place in the Christmas story. And if Matthew was an author or a writer for Hallmark movies, it probably doesn't make it off of the cutting room floor. Probably stays there. But Hallmark, I would say, actually seems to make more of a claim to our perception of Christmas than Matthew does. Warm and sentimental has its place, but I would say that it isn't the central one. 
Yet, the, the fact that this warm, sentimental feeling around Christmas has become this way, it's kind of hijacked the message of Christmas. And it's made it seem like the spirit of Christmas is probably an unrealistic one. And when something's unrealistic, it becomes less meaningful. So Christmas has become less meaningful because it isn't all that believable. So instead, today, what I want to talk about is how Matthew continues with the fleeing family from their home in the dark of the night, facing political oppression and forcing them as refugees into a foreign land. The true story of Jesus actually speaks directly to what it means to be human. He was born into a real world with real evil. And this is the difference between our perception of Christmas and the Christmas story itself. Our experience of Christmas, and I know I can be guilty of this as well, can become a form of escapism, whereas Christ's arrival into the world engages with us in what is real. Now, uh, remember, we talked about this at length. Uh, Matthew is unique in his storytelling. He isn't pursuing to be complete. He picks stories and he includes them to move the story forward in the idea of the kingdom of God and to speak to the people of Israel. And like we've said before, <coughs> there are people within the story that are not normal Characters that we see in the Christmas movies that we watch. Fleeing to Egypt, children massacred, returning to a second choice location in Nazareth. It's a nothing town. But each of these movements in our reading today are vital to the genesis of Jesus. Matthew has done something incredibly profound here. And I want you to do this with me this morning. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the individuals who are walking through this story. Where we find a, a young bride and, and uh, her husband. And we find that she is impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and he finds out that she's faithful because she's, he's visited by an angel. And so they escape, and they, they, they make a decision that they're going to stick together, and then they go to Bethlehem, and they have the baby, and it seems like things are going to work out because now the Magi have showed up, they've given them a gift, and they're like, I finally got my life together, and something that was awkward and okay suddenly becomes something horrible because they receive word that the king had found out about Jesus. And five miles away from Jerusalem to Bethlehem was sending soldiers to kill their baby. And so they flee in the middle of the night. And they make their way 300 miles south to Egypt, likely ending up in Alexandria where there was a lot of Jews at the time. And they, they have to drop everything, all that they had known, and they go as refugees in a foreign land. And then as they're going, I imagine that they would have received word that the soldiers that they had, fleed, had, had, had to flee from had arrived at the town and had slaughtered those children. I want you to imagine with me what the experience of those parents would have been. Mary and, and, and Joseph, the, the grief, the, the guilt, the, the pain that they would have felt in that moment. This was their Christmas story. Probably haunting her 
all throughout her time as she's raising her child in a foreign land. And then they receive word that Herod has died and they make a decision, we're going to return. And, and that's hijacked from them as well. The hope they might have felt about returning home is taken away from them and they have to go miles north to Nazareth, Mary's home, where they find a place to finally set up shop. Guilt, shame, insecurity. I mean, I really want you to think about the feelings that are at play here. This is not a sugar-coated story. This is teeming with difficult moments and struggles. And I know that there are difficult stories that are at work in this room this morning. But consider the first three years of this family's life and the incredible struggle they would have faced. So the question we are left with then is why do we have Matthew include these stories? Well, think about this. In the face of such difficult and traumatic circumstances, what is the question we often ask? Where is God? Where is God in the moments of horrendous evil and tragedy? Or simply when storms come? Where is God when things do not go as planned? And what I want to explore on this, this Christmas service is three moments that we see in the story responding to this question and each of them explore where God is in moments of terror and tragedy. So the first moment that we see is in verse 13 of our text, the leaving. It picks up where our story ended last week as the Magi have left their gifts and they worshiped the baby Jesus and they have unintentionally notified this paranoid king of the arrival of the king of kings. And so they are forced to flee to a foreign land as an angel appears to Joseph saying, you got to get out of here. So they flee during the night and they go to Egypt and here is terror and tragedy number one. They have to let go of everything that they have, all that they know, go to a foreign place with a new baby and begin life. And this is the question that's asked again. Where is God in this? You can imagine what they would have felt. We can't catch a break. It's already been hard. Why can't we just get a break from this one? And Matthew says, this is not taking place to punish you or simply to, to cause you pain. In fact, what we see taking place is something that fits into a pattern. Have you ever heard of a story of a God who raises up a deliverer, but there is some insecure, power-hungry ruler who uses oppression and violence to try and thwart God's plans and subdue God's people? It's the story of Moses that's being reflected in the story of Jesus the original deliverer from Egypt. And what we see throughout the Gospel of Matthew is actually the author is using many points of the story of Moses to point to Jesus. That there was, this was the new Moses, this was the new deliverer, this was this is the new law that was going to come in to set the people free. And Moses may have come to set people, the people of Israel free, 
But Jesus had come to set humanity free. And this is the story that is set from the very beginning, that even within the fleeing that they were forced to, forced to embrace and, and to experience, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were going to be protected and set free just in the same manner as the people of Israel were in the story of Moses. Now, if we look at verse 15, it says, So it was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you were reading this text, you would see a little footnote that would point to the bottom. And if you go to the bottom, you would see it would be talking about the prophet Hosea. And it would specifically be leading you to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea is about 800 years before the arrival of Jesus. And this is what it says. In Hosea 11 verses 1 to 4, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Hosea, in this passage, is reflecting on the Exodus story, the Moses story. In Exodus 4, where Yahweh, he calls Israel his firstborn. And Hosea, he picks up on this metaphor of Israel. And why does this matter? Well, what is happening here is that Matthew wants us to see something. He wants us to see that this isn't the first time that some selfish, powerful human has tried to thwart God's purposes to save and redeem his people. That it is, in fact, the pattern of humanity that was going to be replicated. What Matthew is saying, that even in the midst of horrific tragedy and terror, God is not surprised or caught off guard. God is not causing it because that is not God's way. But in fact, God meets that moment when it happens and he continues to do what he's already done and he provides redemption to a people that never thought they could see it for themselves. The story of Israel became the story of humanity through the person of Jesus, and it was just beginning. We are being reminded in this very first movement that the God who liberated and redeemed Israel from the powers of evil is the same God who will liberate the humanity that is all around us from the power of evil at work. What he had done once he was going to do again. The second movement that we see is in the weeping that takes place. The text says when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the astrologers, he was ticked. He was upset. And we talked about this last week. Herod is a paranoid, murderous individual with a tendency to do the worst thing possible. And that's what he does in this moment. And so he calls for the slaughter of the children, the, the baby boys within the town of Bethlehem. And what we know about Bethlehem is that based upon what archaeologists have been able to find and based on culture and birth rates around that time, that this slaughter would have included 25 to 50 boys. Often when we talk about texts like this, we can find his, historical fact that backs it up, that actually uh, it, it communicates that it happened through other sources. This is one story where it doesn't talk specifically about this slaughter. And this is likely because 
Herod did this often. This was not an aberration in the, for the people of Israel. It was actually the fact that he murdered more of his family than he did baby boys in Bethlehem. Unfortunately, this was the reality of the oppressive ruler for the people of Israel. Horrific. Evil. And like we said, can you imagine the feeling that Mary would have had when she was fleeing? And Matthew meets us in that. And he speaks of the previous tragedy that took place in the the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 verse 15 is what's quoted and it says, This is what the Lord says, A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And this is what the Lord says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Here's what Jeremiah is doing in the midst of what's taking place is the exile of Israel. Babylon has come and conquered Israel in this text. And what they've done is they've rounded up all the survivors and they've brought them to this place called Ramah a little south of Jerusalem, and they chained them up for a 2,000-mile prisoner caravan to take them to Babylon. He is mourning and lamenting this loss, and he's depicting Rachel, who's a matriarch of Israel. She died in childbirth, and she was the mother of Benjamin as weeping and mourning over the loss of lives and the loss of freedom for the people of Israel. And what Matthew is doing in this moment is he's communicating through the prophets that have gone past that the heart of God remains the same. Just as we would weep and lament and grieve the loss of lives and loss of freedom, how much more so does the heart of God grieve and weep and and mourn over the same? Romans 8 speaks of a, a groaning, weeping God. God does not cause evil but he is present in times of evil. He is groaning and grieving with us and ultimately guiding humanity to healing. I think sometimes we can be tempted to think of Jesus as as this deity that's a little bit aloof, that's separate from the brokenness of this world, as if he's disconnected from all of it, as if he wants to keep us at arm's length. But Matthew reminds us in this text that Jesus, as he entered the world, did not bypass any of the evils of the world that he actually lived in the midst of them. And he felt their effects from the very beginning. Uh, Understand, as a refugee, he was going to a place where he was not moving into a palace. He was not guaranteed food. He was not guaranteed security or comfort. He was moving into the pain of humanity fully. He knew what it was to suffer as a human well before the suffering on the cross. And yet he chose to engage in it. Jesus is not avoiding suffering in order to grasp at safety here. He is avoiding this lesser suffering of death as an infant so that he might one day take upon the greater suffering of the cross. 
And so the, the, the challenge that we face when we read a text like this, it's one thing to know who God is and how God responds in the midst of grief and in the midst of pain. And it's another thing to ask ourselves, how do we respond when we are faced with similar circumstances? The invitation, the challenge is always, as a follower of Jesus, can I respond like Jesus? And the response of Christ is not one of, a, of an aloof deity, arm's length away from that which is uncomfortable and painful. It is one that enters into the pain, not with an immediate solution to make it all feel good and have warm smiles and good feelings. It is to grieve, it is to mourn, it is to be present. In the midst and in the response to terror and tragedy, God weeps. And he groans. And he is with us. And the third moment that we see what is God's response in the midst of terror and a tragedy. And it takes us to when they return. They've already experienced so much heartache and so much failure, so much loss. And you can imagine the, the excitement they prob probably would have felt in that moment. We finally get to go home. I can't wait to, to see our friends and I can't wait to actually get our life back on track. And they, they begin to make their way and then find out that it is no longer a safe place for them, period. And they're forced to go to a, a new spot. They go back to, to Mary's home, to Nazareth. And where they find themselves in Nazareth is not some, some amazing place, not some, some Palm Springs resort that was going to be the be next best place. This was a little mountain town, maybe, maybe a few hundred people. It was a nothing place in a nothing city with where nothing good came out of it. It was known as such, and yet that was where they had to go. Matthew, he doesn't cite a verse. You'll notice the previous two movements. A verse is specifically cited, and then it is quoted. It's not what happens in this specific movement. What we see in this one is that he just draws on multiple sources, and he makes the statement that this is the words of the prophet. In other words, he is quoting an idea or theme that runs throughout the prophets. In, in Isaiah 11, it speaks of a shoot that will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And so what he's saying is that the exile will cut off the line of David, but God is going to fulfill his promise still as a future messianic king would come to the line that was seemingly cut off. So a very common name that was actually given to the Messiah was a branch or a stick or a, or a stick man. And what Matthew is doing, he's pointing out this. He's pointing out that Nazareth sounds similar to Nestor, and the, which is the Hebrew word for branch. In the words of Tim Mackey, the word Nazareth means stick town. It's the sticks. It's, it's the middle of nowhere. It's this obscure, unimportant town buried in the valley, and we're shown how the humble beginnings of the Savior aren't isolated to his birth. It was in his upbringing. It was in his life that he lived. It was in his ministry. 
The Messiah is to be a man of humility. Isaiah 53 says, the suffering servant king grew up like a young branch, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, no great appearance to attract us to him. He was despised and forsaken by others. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. Familiar with grief. These are the three movements that respond. The fleeing, the weeping, and the returning, they bring us back to this question, where is God in the midst of terror and tragedy? Well, he's liberating us. The God who liberated and redeemed Israel from the powers of evil is the same God who is liberating and redeeming humanity from the powers of evil. He's grieving with us. God does not cause evil, but he responds to it by being present with us in it. And number three, he's transforming us. Because this town of Nazareth was known as one thing, but it was used for another. In the grand story of humanity, God is using the most unqualified of people in the most unqualified of places for the most purposeful of things. This is the response of God in moments of terror and tragedy, liberating, grieving, and transforming situations that we thought far gone. The model of Jesus is not to escape into a hopeful tomorrow, but rather to carry hope into the darkness of today. This is, this is the thought I want you to take home with you today. In order to be Emmanuel, God with us, he chooses to be with us where the pain is. He has to be with us where the pain is. And this is the choice that is made and is the choice that he continues to make. The spirit of Christmas is not eggnog lattes and gingerbread houses. It is not Christmas pageants and good feelings. It is certainly not Four smiles at the end of a weary year. I saw a quote from Meredith Miller, and she says, in response to this question of what is the spirit of Christmas, she says, weary, that's the spirit of Christmas. Desperate, that's the spirit of Christmas. Unsure if God will show up, that's the spirit of Christmas. Afraid of the actions of those in power, that's the Christmas spirit. Longing for something better, that's the Christmas spirit. Because the Christmas spirit is the spirit of God at work in the world. It is God with us. And in order to be Emmanuel, God with us, he chooses to be with us where the pain is. Has your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with Christmas become an escape? Has, has Christmas, the type of Christmas you want to have, do you attempt to uphold it in such a way that it's become an unrealistic one? Has Christmas become less meaningful because it's less believable? It feels like masks and mirages to escape from the pain of reality. That is not Christmas. That's not who Jesus is. And this is not what Emmanuel means. The true story of Jesus speaks to the heart of what it means to be human. 
He was born into a real world with real evils. And the beautiful hope is that in his great love for humanity, in his great love for you, he showed up. He came to be where the pain is. That's the choice he made with you and I in mind. So after a year where you might have felt incredibly worn down and beaten up, Maybe there was moments of difficulty and pain that come flooding back in this Christmas season. And perhaps you feel a sense of guilt, like you should be enjoying all that is taking place in the moment. Know this, there is no rush to move past the reality of the pains that we have experienced. In fact, this is the moment of invitation. That at the Christmas season, it's not that we put on fake smiles to make things seem better. It's that we bring all that we have in all that we're experiencing to our groaning, weeping God who brings us liberation and transformation so that we can find peace and rest where we thought it was impossible. Where is God in the midst of terror and tragedy? He's with us. He's with you. And the presence of God is for you in a way that we so desperately need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for our time together today. For your word and how it leads us and it shapes us, I just pray that you would meet us in the midst of all that we're carrying this morning. For those who are here and those who are watching online, we just pray, Father, that our hearts, that we are so quick to put walls up around, that you would give us the courage to vulnerably come before you and offer it all. For broken relationships, that we are still grieving, and that Christmas seems to bring to the forefront, I pray that we would find you. For lost opportunity and, and hopes and dreams that seem, have, seem to have gone to the wayside, I pray that we find you. For every bit of pain that is held in this room, I pray first and foremost that we find you and in your presence we would find healing, we would find rest, we would find joy, and we would experience the love that we need that transforms our hearts. Thank you for the gift of this Christmas season that you are with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.